Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now is Gargi Chowdhury, head of iShares America's investment strategy at BlackRock. Gargi, great to catch up with you again. Let's just start with CPI. What you're looking for tomorrow and how you expect this market to respond to it. Hey, good morning. Great to be here. So very exciting days for those of us who look at the inflation markets, which is everyone these days. Um, so I think we're probably going to get something that's a little bit stronger, at least than what the market is pricing in on both the core and the headline. Uh, and when I think about the core data, I think what will be important for us to look at is the breadth of the strength. Um, so thinking back to sort of the summer, you'll remember that most of the strength in CPI was coming from those uh, reopening sectors. So whether you think about travel or airfares or hotels, things like that. And I think what we saw in the October data more specifically was that the, there was a little bit of a breadth broadening out. So we were seeing uh, strength in both goods and services inflation. So I am looking forward to seeing more of that, more of strength in some of the goods parts of the market, as well as uh, services such as shelter inflation. Where's the opportunity for investors, Gargi, given the fact that we've seen inflation rise to the fastest pace since the 1980s, likely to continue in that vein, uh, with likely pressure then coming from the Fed next year? Yes, absolutely. So I would say a couple of things here. Uh, we do think that inflation, for, you know, if we look about a year ahead from now, so obviously we're going to see a pickup in the near term, but after that we're likely to moderate. But I think what it's important to note is we're still going to settle at a level that is higher than the pre-pandemic period, which was obviously, as we know, below 2%. So we're going to settle at that higher level of inflation, and investors need to think about hedging their portfolios in a multi-asset fashion. So obviously looking at equities of those companies, what we call the quality companies, that are able to pass on higher prices to their, uh, cost, uh, you know, pass on the higher prices. Uh, within the bond markets, obviously, you know, expectations are, our expectations are for yields to go higher. But at the same time, sort of moving your allocations to inflation-linked bonds, I think, could make sense. We've certainly seen a huge amount of flow both into TIP and STIP, which are the two iShares ETF tickers. 20% uh, of the fixed income ETF flows this year have come into inflation-linked bonds, and I expect that to continue to do well as compared to nominal bonds. And then the last area I think that makes sense is really looking at real assets. So you should be looking at a basket of diversified commodities, looking at REITs, uh, and looking at infrastructure. I think all of those uh, make sense for an investor to think about in a regime of higher inflation than the pre-pandemic one. Gargi, it's fantastic to speak with you in part because you've got a bird's eye view for the retail and the institutional investors. Have you felt a big divergence between the two heading into year end as retail investors see the inflation concerns and the longer term nature of them potentially as being more of a threat than the institutions that seem relatively sanguine or even optimistic <laughs> in their outlooks? 
Um, I don't think it's a retail versus institutional bifurcation. I think there are investors that brought into, that really did buy into that uh, transitory story. I know we don't say that word anymore, it's been retired. <laughs> but there were investors that did buy into that story and they could have been uh, from the wealth community as well as the institutional community. I think more and more we're gravitating towards a space where investors are asking me and I'm sure many other strategists and portfolio managers across Wall Street around what is the best inflation hedge. You know, we've written papers and uh, we're coming out with our year ahead outlook. And this is something that we're focusing on because this is what our clients are asking mm -hmm. us. So I think the story has changed from what do I need to do to insulate my portfolio for the next two or three months to very much a belief now that this is probably with us for a slightly longer period of time. And how should I play for it in that medium term period? And Gargi, speaking of the 2022 outlook, Look, we've talked a lot already this morning about the divergence in the headline level, where we think the S&P 500 or where strategists think it will end up at the surface level. When you talk about the leadership beneath it, 2021 was supposed to be value over growth, small caps over large. That actually didn't really happen. Does that actually happen in 2022? <laughs> we'll see. I mean, listen, there, there are a lot of reasons why it didn't happen. You know, we saw that did take place in the beginning of the year, and then you had the Delta scare. And again, this year, right when we were all getting pretty optimistic about the growth prospect, and, you know, we still are, you do have this Omicron fear that is in the markets. We see that in the bond pricing right now. Um, so for next year, I think there is reason to believe that, yes, we can see some of those uh, cyclical components of the economy do better, but we have have to be a little bit humble around some of the risks that have come up more recently, whether it is with the Federal Reserve, whether it's with the new variant. Um, so what we're telling investors to do is really focus on a value and a quality barbell and then really look at some of those companies that have that pricing power, that ability to pass on higher prices. And, um, you know, that's what we think investors should do for 2022. Gagi, just awesome, as always, and good to hear from you. Gagi Chowdhury there of BlackRock. Mark Cabana, I wonder if he is the head of race strategy at Bank of America Global Research. Mark, the front end, the back end of the yield curve. Let's start with the back end and then we can go to the front end. What is driving tens right now, Mark? Why are we down at 150? So tens are believing that the Fed may be making a policy error um, by essentially overweighting a fight against inflation versus supporting growth. Um, they're doing that because there's concerns about the Omicron variant and the recent uptake in cases that we have seen. They're doing that because they're worried that the Fed is going to be tightening into supply constrained inflation and re reduction of consumer purchasing power. And they're doing it because they're worried that risk assets may be very sensitive to overall rate levels and the stance of policy. So that's what's keeping the back end relatively pinned. It's what's keeping it around one and a half percent right now. Um, but it's what's allowing the curve to flatten because the market has gotten the message from the Fed and they know that the Fed's going to be tightening in the not too distant future. This is the reason why I love covering this market. It's enough to make your head spin. The idea that at a certain point, the Fed uh, might get a message from the markets that are getting a message from the Federal Reserve and say, well, they think that we're making a policy error. Perhaps we'll tap the brakes, not raise rates as much. At what point does the yield curve flattening send that message to the Federal Reserve? So I think that the Fed is probably not too happy about the shape of the curve, given where they are in their hiking cycle. They're just about to start. And they know that the market is telling them that they may not be able to hike by all that much. That's not a real warm and fuzzy signal if you're at the Fed. 
But that's not your issue right now. Your issue is that you need to guard against elevated inflation. You need to start leaning against demand and you need to start doing that by tightening financial conditions. That's how the Fed transmits monetary policy. And so even though it's not a great signal for the Fed, I don't think it's going to prevent them from taking the necessary action and beginning to withdraw monetary policy accommodation. Well, the action they will be taking in the most immediate term may come on Wednesday. And of course, we have the CPI print tomorrow, Mark. Are either of those events actually going to be catalysts for the bond market? Or is all of that already priced in and the market already front ran both of those events? So the market's certainly expecting elevated inflation tomorrow. Our economists, who've had a great call on this, are projecting, though, that CPI is going to realize even higher than expected. Uh, They project uh, a reading that's going to be two-tenths above consensus on headline and one-tenth above consensus on core. So that's going to be probably, uh, it's going to further this flattening dynamic that we're seeing in the market, or it's going to firm the amount of rate hikes that are expected for next year. Now, the meeting next week, um, we think, will confirm some things that are likely widely expected now by the market, such as a more accelerated pace of taper, essentially doubling the monthly purchase reduction, and then ending purchases by the time of the March FOMC meeting, which may give the Fed or will give the Fed the option to hike if they want. Um, It's also going to give us an updated reading on the dot plot. um, And certainly, we're sympathetic to former New York Fed President Dudley's views that we're probably going to see more hikes that get priced, um, two, maybe three uh, for next year. But the the thing that could surprise the market that we sense is still underappreciated by clients is a discussion of the Fed's balance sheet. And Lisa, you mentioned this earlier. The Fed may be gearing up for quantitative tightening. They haven't given us much guidance yet, but if they start to shrink the balance sheet at some point next year, that we think could really weigh against risk assets because it's going to be adding duration risk to the market. Uh, It'll be adding more term premium that will lean against the flattening pressures slightly, but most importantly, it's going to be withdrawing liquidity out of markets. Um, And the extent to which Powell elaborates on this or provides hints in that direction Uh, may end up being the big surprise for the meeting next week. Mark, just quickly, just in terms of sequencing then, do you think that needs to happen before we get that rate hike? And does that change your view on when they make a move? No, we think that the sequencing will be as they have historically done. Rate hikes before balance sheet reduction, or perhaps rate hikes with balance sheet reduction at the same time. We don't think it's likely that they begin balance sheet reduction before rate hikes primarily because the Fed has a much better understanding of how rate hikes or increases in the federal funds rate end up impacting the real economy. They've done this for years. They've got good models that give them confidence in how it works. What they're less less confident in is how the balance sheet actually influences underlying economic conditions. That said, Powell has told us all along that they have multiple tools with the emphasis on the plural here, to deal with elevated inflation. And the two most obvious tools to us are rate hikes and balance sheet reduction. That means that balance sheet reduction could potentially be pulled forward. Gets you thinking, Mark. Just wonderful. Brilliant. Thank you, sir. Mark Abana of Bank of America Global Research. Joining us now is Glenn Herbert, Columbia Professor of Economics and former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Professor, you've also got a book coming out in early 22 called The Wall and the Bridge. We can discuss that a little bit later. I just want your response to your read, how you gauge this labour market right now in America. 
Well, I think the labor market uh, is improving and is in, frankly, fairly good shape. You know, from a Fed perspective, the question is, well, what about the participation rate? If everything else looks good in terms of employment, can monetary policy bring back that participation rate? I'm skeptical there. I think the labor market is in great shape. It is time for the Fed to adjust. It's time for the Fed to adjust. This is a message that you've sent before, and you're not alone in this, especially with the likes of uh, Bill Dudley, formerly of the New York Fed, saying the same thing. At what point do we start to see it reflected in wages that are keeping up with the inflation that we're seeing in consumer prices? I think that will happen very soon, and I think in some respects it is already happening. We have demand running faster than supply. There are a lot of supply problems in the economy, but the Fed can't really fix those. The Fed had been focused on the word transitory. Now, fortunately, it's backed away from from that definition. The game, of course, is to stop a wage spiral from starting. And I think there is an opportunity for the Fed to do that. But the pivot to tapering and rate hikes will have to be more aggressive than the Fed had telegraphed before. What do you say to people who argue that inflation will naturally roll over next year, that some of these pressures will become uh, less of a pressure as we get a more normal economy and people come back to work in more force, some of those 11 million job openings get filled? What do you say, given the fact that that has been the regime we have been in for decades? Well, we certainly will see supply pressures attenuate. That will help. But let's remember, there's been a lot of goosing of demand. The Fed had been buying back mortgage-backed securities when the housing market was on fire. We've been very accommodative fiscal and monetary policy. So those really have to adjust. I don't think we can think it's just going to roll back on its own. You know, consensus for uh, PCE next year would be about 3%, CPI more than 4 The Fed really has overshot in the manner it's suggested in its new framework. It's still time to adjust. Well, Glenn, you mentioned fiscal policy there, and, and Michael McKee, when talking about these jobless claims, the idea that maybe people went back into the labor market as they've had to start drawing down their savings that they built up over the course of the pandemic, thanks in part to fiscal policy. What do you think happens as that winds down, and what happens especially to consumers' tolerance of some of the higher prices that they're facing? Well, I think we will start to see uh, people re-entering the labor force, but there's still a lot of excess savings out there, albeit they're unevenly distributed in the in the population. I think a bigger issue may be cons- uh, consumers and households, workers' fears of going back to work. And I think that will have to sort itself out with the vaccine more than with fiscal policy. Well, and we're seeing return to office plans push back for some Wall Street banks for the likes of Lyft. What is the economic consequence? And John was alluding to this earlier, the idea that if people aren't going into the office in the cities, they're not going to visit their coffee shops or their lunch places. Do you see a a risk of us reverting if we do go back to a kind of work from home environment as we move forward throughout the winter and into 2022? Well, I think most large employers want to avert that for simple reasons that having people together can improve collaboration and productivity. But of course, it has to be safe. And so the real issue is to focus on the public health and get people back to work for all the reasons you suggest. Having said that, I don't think the new world will look like the old. I think companies will have to adjust and be more flexible to work from home, just not as extreme as all the time. Glenn, can I make a suggestion that those empty shelves behind you, we fill them with your new book? Yeah, we're, moving, the to a, we're moving to a new campus in a week. So they just packed up my office. I'm not part of the great resignation. <laughs> that, that's not what's happening. Just, just wanted to try and find out, Glenn. As this book release comes out early next year, can you walk us through it, Glenn? What's in the book? What's the objective? What's the essence of it? 
Sure. It's a book called The Wall of the Bridge. It's a love letter to Adam Smith across the centuries, uh, a founder of modern capitalism and economics. Uh, basically, we're living in a world of big change. And big change means good things to a lot of people, but disruption for others. Our policymakers on both sides have tended to try to build walls on the left and the right to protect people. Better is to go back to Smith and other classical thinkers who wanted to build bridges. How do you help people compete? How do you bring communities back? That's what the book's about. Really, really thoughtful stuff. And Glenn, you're always generous with your time. We appreciate it, sir. Professor, thank you. Glenn Hubbard there of Columbia. Doctor, thanks for being with us, sir. Dr. Chris Byra, professor at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Doctor, I want to start here because yesterday all we talked about was this lab-based study from Pfizer-BioNTech. Can you help us understand the difference between a lab-based study and a real-world study? How wide the gap is between the two? Well, you know, the lab studies are very informative and they're important. But at the end of the day, what really matters is what the real world data looks like, what we're seeing with infections, hospitalizations, serious disease. The Pfizer study um, was small, uh, fewer than 50 people. It's lab-based data. It suggests uh, good antibody responses to uh, Omicron with the third dose boost uh, in this small number of people. Um, But there's other data that we're more excited about, like the fact that uh, what we're seeing from South Africa is that many of the people hospitalized with Omicron are on room air and don't appear to be as gravely ill as people, for example, infected with Delta. Dr. Byer, I've been asking for a couple of months now when we can transfer from a pandemic to something endemic, when the illness is not severe enough, whether because of immunizations or because of a variant that isn't as severe, to allow us to treat it like the cold. Are we getting close? Is Omicron close to that threshold? Well, unfortunately, you know, the world is in a serious Delta surge. So I think right now the answer is no. Infections are up in Europe, as you know. They're up here. Uh, We are approaching 800,000 American dead. We're going to pass that threshold in a few days. Uh, And uh, we had 118,000 infections yesterday. Most of that, or almost all of it, is Delta. So uh, I think the answer so far is no. It does appear that Omicron is more... Uh, transmissible even than Delta. And if it is really true, and we'll know that in another week or two, that it's a milder disease, uh, that may uh, be uh, something of a turning. Uh, But for right now, we're in the middle of a serious Delta surge. Can you elaborate on that, this idea that if it is four or more times as transmissible as the Delta variant, as this one Japanese study showed, and it is less virulent, that it could cause herd immunity, and I hate to use this when it's Tom Keene's birthday, but herd immunity uh, in a more efficient way. How realistic is that possibility among some of the healthcare professionals that you speak with? Well, herd immunity has been elusive, unfortunately, uh, Lisa. And one of the reasons why is because uh, one of the things we've seen with Omicron that's concerning is that many of the people uh, infected with Omicron have recovered from previous infections with coronavirus. So natural immunity does not appear to be that protective. Uh, What we really need to see, of course, is uh, people getting their full immunization and then now clearly needing uh, to be boosted. If you look at the total U.S. population, including children under five, we're only at 61 percent fully immunized. So that is not enough to achieve herd immunity in this country, for sure. 
When we look at the policy response to this in the public sector in the UK, for example, where they're putting in massive restrictions uh, on the entire mm-hmm. country, or the private sector here in the US, where you have Jeffrey saying work from home again, Lyft pushing their return to office date out into 2023. What is mm. the appropriate policy response at this point in the pandemic, given how little we know? Well, uh, I have to say that I think the vaccine mandates are a very important part of this. And uh, by the way, as I've said before to you all, uh, they are constitutional, at least as far as the 1905 case that went to the Supreme Court in the case of the smallpox vaccine mandate, and it was determined to be constitutional. So I think the workplace employment mandate uh, that President Biden has put forward is a really important policy step. Uh, In the meantime, we are in the middle of a Delta surge. We are seeing that related to the winter and the cold weather and people going inside. And that means that non-vaccine interventions like indoor mask mandates and people working from home are again going to be important. Uh, we know now the Omicron is here in 50 states. Uh, we're still very carefully following this to see if indeed it's going to be less virulent. Um, but of course, in the middle of a Delta surge, uh, we need to really practice the basics of control of coronavirus. Doctor, good to catch up with you, sir. Doctor Chris Barr there of Johns Hopkins. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.